My name's John. Uh, I'm married to Claire. I've got three children. Uh, my lovely wife, Claire, there. Um, yeah, I've got three children. Uh, they're nine, seven, and five, Reuben, Rebecca, and Sarah. Um, do you know this song? Hit me up, John. Press it. Yes. I don't know if you can read that. Rescue me, take me in your arms, rescue me. I want your tender charms. Cause I'm lonely and I'm blue. And I need you and your love too. Come on and rescue me. favourite songs. It's my favourite songs of all time. Right. Could be a psalm, couldn't it? Right. Um, (laughs) Rescuers are amazing. Don't we love rescuers? Rescuers are amazing. Um, Like rescuing someone from a fire, rescuing someone from sea, rescuing someone from danger, rescuing someone from themselves, from a dangerous, from a destructive lifestyle. We love rescuers. We make news articles about them. We honour people who rescue others. We honour the fire service and lifeboats and ambulances and mountain rescue people. We love rescuers so much, we make up stories about rescuers. Uh, We make films about rescuers, films about them, songs about them even, poems. We love rescuers. Rescuers are amazing. Isn't it amazing to rescue someone? Well, do you want to hear about the most amazing rescuer ever? Yeah, (laughs) good. That means I can keep going. I'm, I'm glad you gave that answer. Right. I'm going to start with a story from long ago. It's a story that you probably know quite well. It's the story of David and Goliath. I expect a lot of you will know that. Some of you won't. I'll just briefly recap the story. If you want to, you can look it up in the Bible. It's in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. So the, so the, the outline is we've got... Um, uh, it's early on in the history of the nation of Israel. Saul is the king at the time. And the Philistines, their neighbors, the, the neighbors of the Israelites, have invaded. Okay, So Saul gets an army together to defend his, his citizens, to defend his families. And they go out and they're going to have a fight. They meet in the Valley of Elah, which is apparently a film from last year. But they met in that valley. And they were lined up. They're going to fight each other. And as sometimes... It's the case in history. One person came out. So one person from the Philistine army came forward, and his name was Goliath. And he said, rather than us all fight and we all get killed, you just fight. You send forward one of your guys to fight me, and we'll just we'll do a 1v1, and whoever wins that like wins the whole battle. But the problem was, Goliath was massive. Like, he was seriously, he was really big. He was really strong. He had loads of armor on. He had all the best weapons. He had a big sword, a big spear, big javelin. He was hench. He was, he was very strong. And everyone, obviously, all the Israelites said, I want to fight him. I don't want to fight him. So they were terrified. And this every morning, he would come out and say, send one of the guys down to fight me. And they didn't want to do it. Obviously, because they didn't want to get killed, because he was really strong. Um, so then this guy called David, it's in the story, called David, he turns up and... He, was, he had lots of brothers. He was the youngest of several brothers. His brothers were already there at the battle. Uh, his usual job was looking after the family sheep up on the mountainside, but his dad sent him to the battle 
to take some food to his brothers and to find out how they were getting on. And when he got there, he heard about Goliath, he heard about how everyone was afraid, and he said, I'll have him, he's mine. Yeah? So he went and he fought him and he won. Yeah? That's, that's basically the story of David and Goliath. And um, um, when we talk about this, we often talk about how David was amazing and he was faithful and he was a really good example and he trusted in God because um, he said, I'm coming to you, like you're coming to me with a spear and with a sword, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. And we look at David and we think we should be more like David and we look at the people who were too afraid and we think we shouldn't be like that. Um, but I think if that's all we take from it, if that's all we take from it, then I think we're missing out on a really important part of the story. Um, so we were at this place called Catalyst, which was a festival. Well, our, our church went there a few weeks ago, and lots of other churches from the local area went to there. And there's a guy who gave a talk called Glenn Shrivener. Is that who says his name? Scrivener. Thank you very much. And um, he said something fantastic, and I'm just going to copy his phrase because it was so good. So talking about Jesus, he said, Jesus primarily is a gift, not an example. And David, to the people of Israel at the time, he was primarily a gift. And not an example. He was an example. He was a really good example. But that isn't why he was there. He wasn't there to show them up, to show them how it should be done. He was a gift. And because the people who were, all the other Israelites who were in the army, like they were faithful. They were obedient. They were already on the front line. They had already put themselves out. They'd put their armor on. They were up for a fight. They weren't hiding at the back. They'd put themselves in danger for their families they were ready to fight. They'd, they'd been obedient to the call of God and they'd stood on the front line and they're like, we're going to fight. We're ready for this. We're going to do this. They'd stepped out of their comfort zone in faithfulness and in obedience. But when they got there, they weren't expecting Goliath. Yeah? They weren't expecting to have to face a giant. Despite their faithfulness and their obedience. But this is the message of David and Goliath, that when you have to face Goliath, God sends you David. When you have to face a Goliath, God sends you David. Not that you have to be like David, but he fights for you. He rescues you. God sent David as a rescuer for everyone else. Not to show them up, but to rescue them. See, God had promised that he would be faithful and that he would deliver them from all their enemies. And on that day, he did. By sending a rescuer. You know, and we can be the same. We step out in faithfulness and in obedience to God. We put ourselves on the front line. Yeah, we put ourselves out there, but we're not expecting Goliath. We're not expecting it to be that. We know it's going to be tough, but sometimes it's tougher than we thought it would be. Maybe, maybe you got married. Maybe you had children. Maybe you didn't get married. Maybe you didn't have children. Maybe you got a job or joined a church, or moved house, or started a business, or tried to do something, and you knew you knew God had told you to do it. You knew it was the right thing. You knew you were stepping out in obedience and faithfulness. And you knew it wouldn't be easy, but you didn't know it was going to be as hard as it was going to be. You, didn't, you weren't expecting Goliath. But the story of David and Goliath is this, that when you're facing Goliath, God sends you David. That when you face a situation... That is beyond your ability to cope. God sends a rescuer. Because rescuers are amazing. 
it says in the Bible, when we are overwhelmed by sin, he forgave our transgressions. Right. Do you know what your name means? You know what your name means? There's an interesting thing about in English is that like our names aren't always English words. They've got roots in other languages. So it's not always obvious what our name means. Like unless your name is Summer, it's a lovely name. But like I know what it means. It means summer, and that's a great thing. Um, but most names like that we use in English are not obvious. So I was introduced as John. My real name, well, my, my real name, <laughs> my superhero name, my actual name is Jonathan. That's my actual name. I actually have two middle names as well. Uh, I was named after my dad's dad, so my granddad, and my mum's dad's brother, so my great uncle, I think. So my first name is Jonathan, and I have two middle names. Charles and Edward. Those are my middle names. So Jonathan has a, I don't know if you know what they mean. I do know what they mean because I looked them up. Jonathan has a, he is, has its origin in Hebrew and it means God has given or like God's gift, basically. <laughs> God's gifts. So Charles, Charles is Germanic and it means man or free man. It's like a man. Yeah. Manly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Edward is Old English and it means rich guard or wealthy guardian. So mm, two, out of, two out of three ain't bad, I guess. Um, hill. I, so my ancestors probably lived on a hill. Anyway, but through God, I have riches. I have access to all Christ's riches. So three out of three. Thank you very much. Right. Um, so. A central message of Christianity is that God is not distant, he's not far off, but he got, he gets involved in the world, and a big way he got involved in the world is he became a man, became a human being 2,000 years ago, and um, he gave himself a name. Did you know that God gave himself a name? It's in the Christmas story, most of you are familiar with the Christmas story. The angel came to Joseph and said, you're going to call him Jesus. So um, Jesus is how we say it in English. Um, it was something else, they spoke Aramaic at the time. Jesus comes, anyway, I get the point. Jesus means God is salvation. God is salvation, or God is saviour, or just saviour, because it's a contraction of uh, Joseph. No, Joshua. So Jesus means saviour. God called himself saviour. Now, the word saviour, right, still has kind of religious connotations. We don't use it like in everyday language. So if we were to translate that again, paraphrase it into a word which is more like everyday language, would be rescuer. Rescuer. Jesus means rescuer. If you look up saviour in the dictionary, the first word that it kind of means is rescuer. So when God became a human, the name that he chose for himself was rescuer. Just let that sink in. God chose, he could have chose anything. He could, have, he could have just stuck with God. Just call me God. That's who I am. He could have gone for Lord or King, Creator, Judge, Boss. I'm the boss. Just call me Boss. I can imagine the disciples going, hey, Boss. But they didn't. They said, hey, Rescuer. That's what he called himself, Rescuer. If you had to pick a name for yourself, like to describe you, what would you pick if you had to pick one word? Oh, I nearly turned into a teacher then. <laughs> Tell the person next to you. <laughs> write it down. Right. No, really write it down. Anyway, um, commit. So he picked for himself the name Rescuer. 
Doesn't that encourage you? That God, when he had to name himself, I'm going to call myself Rescuer. God chose that name. And God doesn't do things accidentally or without meaning. It means something. He chose for himself the name Rescuer. And uh, sometimes we call him Jesus Christ or the Messiah. That means basically the promised one. So we could translate Jesus Christ as the promised rescuer. Makes it even better. So how has how has God rescued us? What was Jesus doing? Well, I have to tell you about Jesus' most amazing act of rescue. His most amazing act of rescue. Because he came to rescue the whole human race. The whole human race, both collectively and as individuals. Now, again, some of you might know this already, but I don't care that I'm going to tell you this again because this makes me excited and it's good for you. The world, so he came to rescue us all, everyone. You came to rescue you, he came to rescue me, all of us. And the world needs rescuing. Have you noticed that? The world needs rescuing. Turn on the news, injustice everywhere we look. Injustice everywhere we look. It's not fair, it's not right. The world's in a mess. And I need rescuing. I need rescuing. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing, if I'm honest with you. Um, it's a little secret there. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. It's not really a secret, though, because I have to word, uh, do my words carefully here, because you're thinking the same thing. Hopefully you're not thinking, he hasn't got a clue what he's doing, but you're thinking the same thing. You haven't got a clue what you're doing, and you know it. I, do, I don't do the things I want to do. And I do things that I regret. And I'm going to die. And I don't really want to. Yeah? I need rescuing. And um, the world needs rescuing, but people use that as evidence somehow that God isn't real. Because the, the logic goes like this. If God is all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful... And there's all this, why hasn't God done something about all the injustice in the world? Like If he was all loving and all knowledgeable and all powerful, he would have done. But injustice is still here, so God can't be here. God can't be real. But there is another option. There is another option. The option, the third option that maybe perhaps we haven't considered is this, that God has done something about it. It's just not what we would expect. God has done something about it, but it's not what we expected to happen. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, whoever was talking, I think it was Rob, was talking about the fact that like, the, the arrogance of assuming that we would know what God would do. We are not all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful. So why is it that we think that we could predict what an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God would do? Because God will deal with injustice. He will. He will end it and he will bring everyone what they are due. It says in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 10, that there's a day coming. There's a day coming called the day of the Lord. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Everything will be exposed for what it is. Everyone will be given to what they are due. And all this injustice will stop. We say, yes, his coming is going to happen. This is great. But actually, it's not all that great. It's not actually all that great. Because God's going, come, God's going to come and deal with all the injustice that there is, including the stuff that we have caused. Let's say, I'm not going to, 
just pretend I'm going to come and punch Rob. I'm not going to punch you, Rob. Okay. But let's say I did. I came and punched Rob. And Rob would say to God, God, why don't you do something about that? He just punched me. Why don't you do something about that? And what God would say to Rob, well, God, I mean, Rob, I will deal with that. But if I'm going to deal with the fact that John just punched you, then I'm also going to have to deal with the fact that you stole something from Simon. (laughs) (laughs) And Simon says, God, Rob just stole that from me. Why don't you do something about it? And then God says to Simon, well, Simon, I will do, but I'm going to have to deal, if I'm going to deal with that, I'm going to deal with the fact that you, you lied to Steve. And Steve says, God, why don't you do something about the fact Simon lied to me? And God will say, well, Steve, I will do that, but if I'm going to come and deal with that, I'm going to have to deal with the fact that you insulted Trevor. <laughs> I've got no evidence that any of that happened. I can neither confirm... Nor tonight. <laughs> so, but we say, I know I've done things wrong, but overall, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm not as bad as them. But the funny thing is, like, is then we set the standard. We always pass. We always set the standard so that we pass. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And so, go, oh, I'm not as bad as them. I don't do those. But the funny thing is, that person is thinking the same thing. Oh, I'm not as bad as them. I love this phrase, with driving. Everyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. And everyone who drives faster than you is a maniac. (laughs) No matter what speed you're driving. We make up the rules to make us look good. Say this prayer, go to this place, give this much money, vote for this person, eat these foods, parent this way. And we always set the standards so that we pass. I know I do things wrong, but overall... Overall, I pass. But we don't get to set the standard. God does. And God is perfect, so his standard is perfect. And none of us meet the standard. And the consequence is separation from God, as you will notice. And that's awful, because God is the source of all good things. And the punishment for not meeting the standard, the consequence is what we call hell. And so God has got a problem Do you know that God has got a problem? This is his problem, that he has to judge. He will judge. He must judge. He must end it because he is just and true. But he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want to bring on us. He doesn't want to bring us the suffering that will result as a consequence of our own actions. God's got a problem. I must judge, but I don't want them to suffer. But they will when I come in judgment. So what does he do? The clue's in the title. He rescues us. He rescues us. God came up with a rescue plan. We're not all loving. We're not all powerful. We're not all knowing. We didn't think of this. God did. Do you want to know what his rescue plan was? This is God's amazing rescue plan. This is God's plan that he comes up with all by himself. I will take their punishment. That's it. I will take their punishment. I will take their punishment. That's why we sing. See, it's really good because God can still judge the world because he takes his punishment out on Jesus. And we can be rescued because he takes his punishment out on Jesus. And he did this when Jesus died on the cross. That's when he did it. That was when his rescue plan was enacted. 
But he didn't stay dead, by the way, just in case you hadn't noticed. Jesus isn't dead still. He's alive. He rules forever. He actually has rulership over the whole universe. And this is why Christians worship. This is why we sung all the songs. Yeah? Because he rescued us by taking the punishment that we deserved. That's why we sing. And, like, I know that's really cool, and I know you're not looking that excited right now because you're just like, oh, I don't want it. But I've, I've seen, secretly through the Bible, I've seen the future. Yeah? I've seen the future because the Bible told me. And if you trust in Jesus right now, if you know that he has rescued you, even though you're sitting there politely at the moment, the Bible's told me that one day you're going to see him and you're going to worship and you're going to roar with, with honour and worship and praise and you're going to get incredibly excited. So it's okay that it's not happening right now because it will happen one day. It will happen one day. You can choose to do it as much as you like before then, but it will happen. You will see him. It's in the book of Revelation. You can check it out. You will see him in his glory, in his wonder, and you will realize what he has done for you. And you will worship him with abandon forever. And it will feel good. So it's okay. It's a good start, guys. Well done. It's a good start. <laughs> and if you want God to rescue you that way, it's really simple. You have to admit that God messed you up. No? Admit that you've messed... Admit to God. I made like a, an acronym, but it didn't work. <laughs> ATM, that's it. Free money, right. Admit to God. I didn't put it on there. Admit to God that you messed up, that you've done wrong, you've done selfish things. Thank him that, he, that Jesus took your punishment by dying on the cross and being raised back to life. And make God in charge of your life and help him, ask him to help you live a life that is truly good. Right, when I was preparing this, I had a picture. Like, I felt God gave me a picture. And the picture was like a cliff. There was a cliff edge. And someone had like been pulled over the cliff edge. And they were lying like out of breath just on the cliff edge. And someone, there was a person next to them who just pulled them over. And I felt like I was saying that there was people here who they know that God saved them, but they feel like they're just on the edge. They feel like they've just been pulled over the cliff edge. You've been saved, but only just. And you're kind of in danger of being blown back off the cliff again. And God wants to say, like, that isn't true. He has totally saved you. You are his. If you pulled someone off a cliff edge, you wouldn't leave them lying there on the cliff edge. You would pick them up and take them far, far away and meet all their needs. And that's what God has done for you. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He didn't, like, just patch up. He didn't just do some first aid on the road. He lifted them up. He took him far, far away. He put him in a hotel. And he paid for all his needs. I just feel like, it's, I don't know, I felt God was saying, there are people here who feel like they've just been snatched into safety. God says, no, like you, you are so safe and secure. I've met all your needs. Because um, the Christian life is a funny one. Like Jesus promised that we would have trouble in the world. He also promised, take heart, I've overcome the world. But there's this, so we know that it's not easy, but there's this other one. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 29 and 30. He says, truly, I tell you, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents of children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive as many as many times as much in this age and in the age to come. God has rescued us. Our eternity is sealed. But God has also promised that we'll know his goodness in this life. 
in this life. And I don't get it. Even Jesus seems to say these, like he says, yeah, you'll have difficulty, but you'll get so much more. So we do have difficult things. I remember um, when I was about 20 years ago or so, kind of really first giving myself to God, so I had to live for God. And like, um, I knew that God had saved me, but I didn't, I wasn't sure if there was such a thing as like heaven that I just described. And if there was such a thing, I wasn't really convinced I was going to go there because I thought that's too good for me. God wouldn't do that. Like he saved me. Okay, I can believe that because he's really good, but he wouldn't do that much. He's not that good. Well, I can say with confidence that God has spent the last 20 years convincing me of his goodness. And I can say that despite everything that happened, and some of it really sucks, that God is good. And my life today is overwhelmingly defined by his goodness. And I'm hungry to see more of that today. Okay, speeding up. Right. Can I tell you about my favorite Bible character? One of my favorite Bible characters. Can I do that? Yeah. Brilliant. Again, great. It means I can keep going. Right. Um, so one of my favorite Bible characters is also one of the most evil in the Bible. Controversial, right. His name is Manasseh, and he was a king in Judah. So we've just been doing a series on Habakkuk. And um, Habakkuk was a prophet who was speaking. I just need to get a little bit of background here. Habakkuk was probably speaking like the early 600s, if I think 609 was it someone said, around the early 600s. Manasseh was king in Judah from 687 to 642. Remember, it's BC, so the years are going backwards. Um, So the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken away by the Assyrians into captivity because of their rebellion against God. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, Habakkuk is complaining about all the injustice that he's seeing. He's saying to God, God, why are you letting this happen? And God says, I'm going to do something that you're really going to be surprised by because I'm going to make things even worse. I'm actually going to send another country to take the southern country of Judah. They're all going to go into captivity as well. I'm actually going to make it worse. Right, so Manasseh is the king in between these times. And Habakkuk is complaining about all the ungodliness that he sees. And if you want to, if you want to read it, it's in, we can tend to 2 Kings 21. If you want to look in there, 2 Kings 21. So I need to tell you a little bit about this book here. The book of two kings was written before uh, the southern kingdom of Israel was taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. And the point of it is to kind of explain why God was doing that. I'm just going to read bits of it. Um, so Manasseh, I'm going to read parts of it. It's uh, two kings, 21. I'm, going to, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read bits of it. So I'm going to skip through. He was 12 years old when he became king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt these altars to other gods. He worshipped all of them and he served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, where God said he'd put his name. He burnt his son as an offering, sacrificed his own child, in ritual sacrifice. He used fortune-telling, omens. He dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He did other things. The Lord said by his servants, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and done more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and also made other people to sin, made the rest of Judah to sin. And then it says later on, 
Verse 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside the sin that he made Judah to sin, beside the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did that what they did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not a very nice person. Did more evil than anyone else, shed very much innocent blood. You might be running at this point, John, why is he your favourite Bible character? Um <laughs> it's a valid question. Um, so the point of two kings was to explain why God was going to come in judgment, like we learn about in Habakkuk's. Let's flip, because now you might know that um, there's another part of the Bible which repeats the same stories near enough. We're going to look in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 33. So the book of 2 Chronicles was written after the people came out of Babylonian captivity, and the point of it was to reassure the people that God would restore them. So let's read the same story about the same person. But this book, because it's got a slightly different purpose, has a, sli- has, has a slightly different ending. Because the first book doesn't tell you the whole story. It just tells you half the story because the authors were trying to make a point. This book tells you the whole story. And then you'll find out why Manasseh is one of my favorite borough characters. It starts off in the same way. He reigned for 55 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He committed abominations worshipped other gods. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Ahaman. He used fortune tellers and omens and sorcery. He dealt with mediums and necromancies. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So we learned about that in the book of Habakkuk. There was this picture of hooks going in their noses. That literally happened to him. Right. Verse 12 is where it starts to get interesting. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And afterwards, it then says that he went on and did some more stuff and served God and built some things. God was moved by his prayer. God was moved by his prayer. Does that offend you? (laughs) Can you think of people right now, alive right now, who you would be offended if God was moved when they prayed to him? If you would be offended by that God forgave them and restored them? I can think of some people right now I knew about that if they prayed to God for forgiveness and God went, I'm not just going to forgive you, I'm going to be desperately eager to forgive you. Does it surprise you? It shouldn't surprise you. Because he called out to be rescued by the one who calls himself rescuer. Jesus, do you remember we said that earlier? God called himself rescuer. So when someone asked to be rescued, even this man, when he asked to be rescued, God was eager to do it. No one is too far from God to be saved. There is no one he won't rescue. There is no life 
he won't turn around. That should excite us. It's kind of offensive as well. Good. (laughs) If you're offended by that, you're starting to get a glimpse of how big his mercy is. Because there are people who rightly don't deserve it, but he does it anyway. And the truth is, you don't deserve it either, but he does it anyway. And maybe when you see someone who you think doesn't deserve it, maybe God's trying to teach you something. Micah 7 verse 18 says this, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. He delights in showing mercy. He doesn't just do it grudgingly. He delights in forgiving. Isn't that a challenge? (laughs) He delights in forgiving. He delights in forgiving you. He delights in forgiving you. He loves forgiving you. He loves forgiving you. He loves forgiving people. He'll forgive anyone. (laughs) He'll forgive anyone who asks. Anyone who asks. He'll just do it because he loves showing mercy. He loves showing mercy. He loves it. He loves to show mercy. You know, like earlier, as Steve was saying, that people who feel like they don't deserve it, you know what? (laughs) God loves showing you mercy. He enjoys it. He delights. That's what the Bible says. He delights in showing mercy. When you ask God to forgive you, he goes, yeah, I love doing that. I love forgiving people. I'll forgive anyone. I'll forgive anyone. He really did. He really did when he died on that cross. He really did take on himself the sins of the whole world. The whole world. All hurt that has ever been committed ever. Do we really understand that? I don't think I do. But he really did. Again, you will be excited about this one day. (laughs) When When you see the implications of it. When you see the implications of it. Right, I did want to talk more about experiencing the goodness of God in our lives today, but I don't have time. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to skip that. Save that for another time. (laughs) And he will, so I'm going to get to the end here. He will finish what he started. He will finish what he started. Also as a church, if you're going through tough times, we want to support you. Just don't want to do a nice preach. We want to put it into action. But like I said, I haven't got time to talk about that now. But we want to put this into action ourselves. Now, as a church, like, we, we, we often say, like, we're not just this little huddle who are waiting for Jesus to return. You know, the church is going to be glorious and wonderful and beautiful and full of power before he comes back. But let's just take a moment to think about the fact that he is coming back. He will finish what he started. The rescuing act will be completed. There will be an end to all suffering. I just want to read to you one last bit. It's in the book of Revelation. It's quite a well-known passage. Book of Revelation 21. This will happen one day, and if you know Jesus, it'll be a good time for you. I saw heaven, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. That's where we are right now, guys. It's passed away, and the sea, which represents confusion, chaos, was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. This is a good bit. Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Yeah, And on that day, we're going to say, hey, his name is Jesus, and he is our rescuer. Thank you.